Okay, will you please stand and turn with me to Revelation 21. Tonight's sermon text is going to be all about brides for the tribe of Benjamin. A very sordid and bleak story. Um, And so I thought I'd set the context for us with something much more hopeful, which is the great bride, the great wedding that comes at the end of all things. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray before we read. Our Father in heaven, help us now to understand, believe, and apply your word to our lives. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work by and with your word in the hearts of your people tonight. We ask this in in Jesus' name. Amen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Amen. Let's turn now to Judges 21, where we're going to conclude tonight our sermon series on Judges. Judges 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the, people of, and the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and all offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? 
For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mitzpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mitzpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and and the little ones. And this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman who has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them, and the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last year, I was about to go to General Assembly. uh, But my car really needed an oil change before I made the drive to the Philadelphia area. Uh, Now, the last few years, uh, I've been trying to change my own oil. And by this time, I had done it uh, several times in a row, so I thought, well, this should be easy, right? I know how to do this. So I changed the oil, and I crank up the car, and I back it out of the garage, and suddenly, I see that oil has just been gushing out of the bottom of the car onto the floor of the garage. And so I thought, well, that's weird. What a mess. And 
for whatever reason, this was not very smart. All I did was I got into the car and I just tightened the the um, oil plug bolt a little bit because that's all I could think of that could have been causing the problem. It must be leaking from around the oil plug. And so I, I tightened it up and I got back in the driver's seat and I, I turned on the ignition again. Uh, but now the oil is gushing out again, except this time it's going all down my running down my driveway, you know, steep driveway, it's just running down, making this huge mess. It's a disaster. It took forever to clean up, took this huge, huge, like the big bag of kitty litter. Um, it turns out the, the, the little gasket from the old oil filter had uh, stuck to the oil filter housing instead of coming off with the old filter when I removed it, and uh, the old gasket was kind of lipping over the edge, and so the oil was just pushing out <laughs> all around it. Uh, like as, as though there was nothing there at all. Um, and I, I really hope, in telling this somewhat embarrassing story, that I'm not the only one here who has had the experience of trying to fix something and in the process making it far, far worse than it was before. And although that story of mine, uh, at least to me, is a little bit funny in hindsight, it was not funny at the time, the history we're considering tonight along the same kind of theme is not funny at all. It is incredibly tragic and an utterly, desperately, desolately sad ending to the book of Judges. So on that cheerful note, let me give you the outline for tonight. And just bear, bear with this, because yes, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And next Sunday night, we get to start in on Ruth, the next book of the Bible. After Judges comes Ruth, which I hope will be a welcome relief, as Ruth represents the, the, that glimmer of hope emerging out of this period of the Judges. Even in the midst of this dark time in Israel, there is righteousness. There is covenant faithfulness. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Ruth um, among God's people. And so that's good news. But for tonight, here are the three points for we could think of as the, that darkest hour that comes before the dawn here in Judges 21. So the first point is going to be another foolish oath, verses 1 through 7. Second will be another civil war, verses 8 through 15. And then finally, another wrong that doesn't make a right, verses 16 to 25. So another foolish oath, another civil war, and another wrong that doesn't make a right. So first, this other foolish oath, another foolish oath. So after, after the civil war that takes place in chapter 20, um, any kind of celebration of victory, that, of the victory that Israel wins in that third battle after their first two initial defeats, any celebration is very short-lived because all of a sudden they are hit with the very awful realization, what have we just done? The historian gives, it this, gives us at this point some information that he's been kind of saving up. And now he sort of springs it on us rhetorically um, as it springs to mind for Israel. Oh no. When we gathered at Mitzpah to wage war against Benjamin, we all swore an oath, didn't we? that none of us are supposed to give any of our daughters in marriage to Benjamin. Well, what were we thinking? You're like me, you've had that thought frequently. What was I thinking when I did that, when I said that? 
What a foolish oath for Israel to have taken. And you see, this is not the first time in Judges that we've seen a foolish oath. In fact, we could even go farther back than Judges, back into the book of Joshua, uh, when Israel, you remember, makes that ill-advised covenant, not with Gibeah, but with the inhabitants of Gibeon, um, the Canaanites who lived in Gibeon. Remember how they, uh, the, how the Gibeonites wore the, their uh, old, worn-out clothes, and they brought stale bread with them in their packs to make it look like they had come from really far away, when actually they lived really close, right in the heart of the Promised Land. And without even consulting the Lord, Joshua just says, okay, I'll make a covenant with you, and he promises that Israel will not attack them. And almost immediately, Israel finds out the truth. They realize, oh, no, these, these guys actually live in our backyard, practically. And they immediately regret this very foolish promise that they've just made to the Gibeonites. Well, then fast forward to Judges. In Judges, you can think of the foolish oath of Jephthah to remember to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house, to greet him after his victory over the Ammonites. Only what comes out to greet him is his only child, his daughter. And as I pointed out when we studied that chapter, we see something similar happen later as well in the closely related history of 1 Samuel in the life of Saul. When Saul places all of Israel under a foolish oath, while they're fighting against the Philistines, and he tells them everybody, everybody has, makes everybody promise not to eat anything until they finish chasing the enemy down, uh, which means, of course, that now the people are famished, and so they can't fight effectively. Plus, Saul's son, Jonathan, doesn't hear about this oath, and so he does eat something that day, and he's barely rescued from being executed for it. It's a, a great mess that Saul makes of things through that foolish oath. And so this whole scenario of Israel's leaders making foolish oaths that proved to be total disasters for God's people is becoming a repeated pattern through this period of Israel's history. And here they've gone and done it again in promising not to give their daughters as wives to the Benjaminites. Now, in verse 2, you might think at first that there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope here because the people are calling out to the Lord. Maybe, maybe they're humbling themselves here. Maybe they're seeking his guidance, except that they're not really humbling themselves, are they? If anything, verse 3 sounds like they're, they're really, um, as Daniel Block puts, puts it, blaming God. He says, it's as if, yeah, does Daniel Block, as if Yahweh has, has failed to fulfill his role as divine patron protecting his people. In other words, they're saying this is the Lord's fault, at least implying it. They also don't really seek his guidance here either, do they? Instead, what do they do? They, they just take matters into their own hands. They come up with their own plan, regardless of what the law of God might have to say about things. Remember, when we, we talked about this when we studied Jephthah's foolish oath. There are some oaths that a person simply ought not, must not keep. It's a very serious thing to violate an oath, to break a promise. But if you've promised to do something sinful, something contrary to the law of God, well, then you must not keep that promise. The sin was in the making of that oath in the first place. And to keep that promise to sin is simply compounding one sin with another. Um, the historian doesn't weigh in here, kind of editorialize and tell us exactly what Israel should have done. Arguably, one 
way of approaching this was that they should have simply repented of their foolish oath. Ask God for forgiveness. Uh, and there are even provisions for this, as we talked about with Jephthah. For what do you do when you make an, a rash oath that you realize you can't keep? How do you repent of that um, uh, before the Lord? Uh, and so, arguably, the right thing would have been to demonstrate their repentance of that sinful oath by being willing to marry their daughters off to Benjamin. At any, at any rate, they had no authority in the first place to refuse intermarriage with an entire tribe of God's people. And this is just another facet of their unjust, unlawful overreaction too broadly punishing this entire tribe for the sins of the men of just one of its cities. Think about it this way. Who was it that, the, that God had told the Israelites that they should not intermarry with? There were instructions like that, right, that the Lord had given to Israel. But the object of those instructions were the Canaanites. Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. And, and Daniel Block points this out as yet another evidence of that theme that he's always talking about. We've mentioned several times the Canaanization of Israel, becoming more and more like the Canaanites around them, right? Not only did the men of Gibeah act like Canaanites, worse than Canaanites, in fact, as you remember, but now Israel is treating their whole tribe in the way that Israel is supposed to be treating the Canaanites. Okay. Next, Israel goes a step further along that same path as they treat yet another group of Israelites like Canaanites as well, this time the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And this brings us to the second point, another civil war. Notice how in, in taking matters into their own hands, as Israel seeks to fix the problem they've created with Benjamin, they seek to do that by perpetrating another injustice on still another group of Israelites. One scholar named Robert O'Connell points out that Jabesh-Gilead is being punished here for a supposed offense that Benjamin also committed. How is this fair? Benjamin also didn't refuse to join Israel in their war against Gibeah. And yet now Jabesh-Gilead is being punished so that Benjamin can be spared the, the total consequences of that same alleged offense that they committed. The logic simply is, is becoming very convoluted and twisted here, the way that Israelites are seeking to justify their actions. Uh, another scholar, Philip Satterthwaite, points out that in this whole chapter, and here in particular, Sins that were originally committed by individuals against individuals back in chapter 19 are now being committed by the nation against much larger numbers of people. It's like the sin is being multiplied and compounded because now there's violence not just against one man and his one concubine and not just the death of one woman, which kicked all of this off, now, in the name of justice, falsely so-called, violence is being perpetrated against a whole Israelite city of men, including who knows how many married women, like the Israelites, like the Levites' concubine. Think of how many women are being killed now in the aftermath of what started out as an attempt to avenge the death of that one woman. Israel's 
simply is not fixing the problem that they set out to fix here. They are making it much, much worse. And repeating it many times over. On top of that, you could even say that that the sexual violence against the Levite's concubine is being multiplied and compounded as well. Think about these 400 young women from Jabesh Gilead who are now being rounded up to be forced into marriage with the Benjaminites by, by the very people who have just slaughtered their families. This is an outrage. If that seems horrifying to you, it should. What's being described here is not being condoned. The whole point here is that Israel is going off the rails. They are just imploding spiritually, morally. It is a disaster. And not only is it a moral disaster, it also, this is the ironic thing, it it fails even to accomplish the purpose that they set out to achieve. What they're trying to do, it doesn't work. For all of that blood that they shed, all of those lives that they've just shattered, they've only managed to come up with two-thirds of the number of wives that they need. 400 wives for 600 Benjaminites that they're trying to provide for. See, when we ignore the word of God and we try to take matters into our own hands, do things our own way, go by our own wisdom, lean on our own understanding, our own instincts, instead of the law and the wisdom of God given to us by revelation, not only do we get ourselves into a helpless moral quagmire, we often don't even accomplish the good that we hoped to get done by our folly. Now, is it, is it, you see verse 15, this seems like a good thing, right? That Israel had compassion on Benjamin. Okay. Okay, sure, that's a good thing that Israel had compassion on Benjamin. But isn't this kind of, in a sense, too little or at least too late. It's true that through the Civil War, the Lord was indeed, as verse 15 says, at work, bringing judgment on the whole nation, as we talked about last time. Remember that Abraham Lincoln quote, illustration from America's Civil War? Um, that the Lord was the one making a breach in the tribes of Israel, the historian says. But it is absolutely the Israelites who are responsible now for their out-of-control warfare against their own brothers and sisters. By the way, you might wonder, why couldn't the Benjaminite men just marry Benjaminite women? And This is really horrifying, but verse 16 seems to be saying that there aren't any left. So total has been the war of Israel against those Benjaminite cities. Those 600 men left at the Rock of Rimmon are all that's left of this tribe. It's almost too awful to, to, to think about how Israel has subjected the cities of Benjamin to the type of total destruction that only the Canaanites were supposed to experience at the hands of God's people. And all of this supposed to supposedly avenging the death of that one concubine of that one Levite. And yet how many other innocent Israelite women have now been made to suffer and die in this misguided and unhinged, reckless quest. Well, the people recognize that their already radical plan to massacre 
Jabesh-Gilead and steal wives from that city has been inadequate, come up short. And so the elders of the congregation have yet another bright idea in the final section of this chapter, which we're calling another wrong that doesn't make a right. It says, as if their moral reasoning was not already darkened enough, this time they, they kind of outdo themselves in this, with this very tortured logic that they use to arrive at this new plan and to justify what they're going to do now. It's like they say, hey, guys, guys, we've got it. Now, we're not allowed to give our wives to the Benjaminites, right? That's the oath we took. But what if they're not given? What if they're stolen? Wouldn't that be so much better? What if we get them? What if we get the Benjaminites to kidnap them? Maybe that's a, a loophole. To, that's another Daniel Block term there. Another loophole that they're looking for that we can exploit in the law of God, exploit in our oath uh, trap that we put ourselves in to get um, some Israelite women married off to the Benjaminites without actually breaking our oath technically. See how pedantic they're being. How uh, um, uh, just twisted this logic is. And so added on top of all of the other atrocities, now they hatch this plan where the Benjaminites ambush the daughters of Shiloh um, during, of all things, a feast where they're supposed to be worshiping the Lord, adding blasphemy on top of everything else. And then they, they say, and of course, when their dads and brothers come complaining to us about kidnapping you know, their daughters and sisters, well, we've, we've got the perfect response. Hey, this is actually good for everybody. The Benjaminites get wives, but you didn't actually give them, so you're off the hook when it comes to your oath. And I just, I, I think, I hope I've made this clear already, but I just want to make this explicit. When you read a passage like this, it may be that you feel a little bit sheepish, thinking, boy, this sure seems like a weird plan to me. I don't, this doesn't quite sound right, but it's in the Bible, so I guess I'm just supposed to think this is okay. No, it is the con- completely the contrary. This whole plan is supposed to shock and horrify and exasperate us. Israel, what are you thinking? That is to be our response to it. How could you possibly think this is a good idea, that this kidnapping of these young women will fix the problem that you created by simply piling violence on top of violence, assault on top of assault, trying to fix one rape and murder, by killing thousands more people and forcing hundreds more women into marriages against their will. The men of Gibeah assaulted one woman. Now Israel is actually facilitating, they're encouraging the rest of their tribe in assaulting the daughters of an entire community. And so as the book of Judges then sort of lurches towards its ending, that bell tolls again. We've heard rung several other times already. One last time, kind of snapping everything into a focus. What's the point of all of this moral chaos that the historian is recording for us in Israel? It's because in those days there was no king in Israel And because there was no king in Israel, everyone was just doing what was right in his own eyes.
Now, I've explained that statement several other times. We've already talked more than once about how the historian is expressing Israel's need, not just for a king in general, but for a godly king who will faithfully lead the people in repentant, humble, covenant submission to the Lord and obedience to his law. A king who will protect the weak and the vulnerable and who will punish the wicked instead of vice versa. See, Israel needs a king like David, of course, and and that's what the Lord eventually will give them, and that's on one level what the book of Judges is setting us up for. It's for the kingship of David that's going to come through Ruth and her descendant who's going to take the throne in First and Second Samuel. We've also talked many times about how the fulfillment of this need, this longing in Israel doesn't stop with David, though. Because if you think about it, after all, David himself falls short in just the kinds of areas that Israel is falling short in in this chapter, in this whole set of chapters. Taking for himself a woman he had no right to take and murdering her husband. Does that sound familiar? Even David does it. And so, in a sense, even David perpetuates the violence and the injustice of this chapter in his own sin. And so we've talked about already how the king that we really need is the Lord Jesus, that perfect leader, that perfect law giver, perfect law keeper, the one who can perfectly protect the weak and vulnerable and defend his people genuinely, that perfect divine warrior who leads us into battle against the right enemies in the right ways. And the lack of those things is being pointed out yet again by this very sad ending of this very sad book. But there's one more facet. Lest I just end by repeating these things that I've said at other times, there's There's one facet of the person and work of Christ I'd like us to dwell on as we close in light of this chapter in particular. And that is, how did Christ obtain his bride? How did Christ obtain his bride? Really, the whole history of the Bible, the whole history of God's work of salvation from one point of view could be told as the quest of Jesus Christ to win and wed a bride. That's how the Old Testament described Israel. They were related to their covenant Lord as a wife to her husband. And that's also how the New Testament describes us, describes the church as the bride of Christ. If you think about it, how has Jesus Christ gone about winning and wedding his bride? Not like twisted, fractured, foolish, violent Israel in this chapter. See, Jesus won his bride 
not by sacrificing everything dear to her in order to gratify himself. Now, the Lord Jesus won his bride by sacrificing himself to rescue and redeem her. Not by seeking his own interests and trying to manipulate the outward rules of the law of God at our expense and to his own advantage. The Lord Jesus did as he kept the whole law of God from the heart. He kept the promise that he had made to his father, which was a righteous promise. Following through on that covenant oath that he had taken to lay down his own life so that our sins could be forgiven and so that our hearts could be cleansed. The thing is, we were the ones who were at risk of being cut off eternally from the fellowship of God. As Benjamin was at risk of being cut off in this chapter. And how did Jesus respond to that plight of ours? He responded by submitting himself to be cut off for us. Even from life itself. Suffering the very wrath of God that our foolish disobedience and all of the moral chaos of our lives and our thinking deserved. Remember what Paul says about husbands loving your wives. How has Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, just like we see her coming down from heaven in Revelation 21. Jesus loves us as though we were a part of himself. In fact, he describes us as his own body. This is not only our heavenly king that we're talking about then, perfect in might and in justice, although, hallelujah, Jesus is those things. But more than that, this is also the heavenly husband of the church, perfect in his love and compassion and gentleness and grace. Such a king and such a husband of the church. That is someone that we can follow with all of our hearts. That is someone that we can love. That is someone we can devote ourselves to, all of ourselves, in loyalty and service because we know that he is so much unlike this failed leadership of Israel. He is everything that they were not and could not be in the time of the judges. And it's because of him that when we, when we see our own attempts to fix our lives going completely wrong, when we see ourselves making things so much worse in our attempts to make them better, that is when We need to look to Jesus and we need to trust that where we are weak, he is strong. Where we are ignorant, he is wise. Where we are broken, he is the healer. And where we are sinful, he is the savior for sinners. There is a king in Israel today, beloved, and his name is Jesus who is the heavenly husband 
of the church. And that is good news for the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a what an awful history you've preserved for us here of things going so terribly wrong. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the ways that you're teaching us, even through it, to know and to love and appreciate our Lord Jesus, our great King and Heavenly Husband, all the more. And we pray you please help us to do that as we reflect on what we've heard tonight. And so that we would love him and be loyal to him and serve and obey him with all that is in us now and for all eternity. We ask this in his name. Amen.